My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Herb Varley and Ivan Drury. Vancouver's downtown east side is one of the poorest urban neighborhoods in the country and also one of the most politically vibrant. Several years ago, a group of community organizers in that neighborhood initiated a province-wide alliance dealing with social housing issues. Though it did some good work, after a few years they became frustrated that it had not achieved the impacts that low-income communities in the province so urgently need and a number of those involved engaged in a sustained period of collective reflection to figure out how to move forward. This took the form of a series of strategy meetings, as well as more informal conversations, that eventually resulted in a decision to start a new provincial formation called the Alliance Against Displacement. The Alliance, as it has developed over the last couple of years, is working hard to address a number of the key weaknesses that have been limiting the ability of movements and communities, not just in BC but across the country, to actually win things. The group is a deliberate move beyond the fleeting single-issue campaign that is so often seen as the basis of what we understand as grassroots politics. It has committed not only to mobilizing, but also to organizing, and it is not allowing the rhythm of its activities to be set by chasing elections. It is building sustained presence and organization in communities, thereby building community power. It is challenging both the politically unhelpful stigma that poverty is only an issue in the downtown east side, and the way that so many struggles remain isolated within local communities, by building relationships within between and among low-income and indigenous communities already engaged in a range of struggles in a range of different places in BC. Moreover, the Alliance has a commitment to sustained, ongoing political development and political education that is integrated into its on-the-ground organizing in a way that allows all involved to strengthen their analyses and their alliances. Recognizing the twin importance of capitalism and class struggle on the one hand, and colonialism and anti-colonial struggle on the other, is central to the Alliance's orientation. Herb Varley traces his heritage to a number of West Coast indigenous nations, and has been involved in political organizing in the downtown east side and beyond for the last half-dozen years. Ivan Drury is a settler who has been involved in radical organizing of various sorts for about two decades and both are deeply involved in the Alliance Against Displacement. They speak with me about the origins of the Alliance, its work supporting and building militant struggles in a range of low-income communities in BC, and the radical political vision underlying it. We spoke by Skype to phone from Vancouver. My English name is Herb Varley. My Niska name is Gwen Carlos Amat and I come from the Niska, the New Channels, the Klingit, and the Hadagwai peoples. My name is Ivan Drury, and I'm an organizer with the Alliance Against Displacement. I've lived in the Vancouver area for my whole life and been involved in radical politics and community organizing for about 20 years, and was part of forming Alliance Against Displacement 
out of some campaigns and organizing efforts that were mostly located in the downtown east side, specifically one that was focused on putting social housing back on the agenda in the provincial election of 2013. So a group of people came together to work on that. And in the after effects of it, we discussed the need to continue to work on political campaigns that developed roots in communities and not just in the downtown east side, low-income community, but in working class, indigenous, and low-income communities in other parts of the province. Our analysis of the situation was that we felt like we were trapped in this cycle of chasing elections and focusing on single issues that we could never win. And it was also beginning to feel like organizing in the downtown east side exclusively was reiterating some of the discourses that poverty is something that's isolated to the downtown east side, that it's an exception within a capitalist and colonial society within, in BC, and that it's not a generalized class and colonial condition for communities throughout the province. And the truth is, is that poverty, displacement, and colonial violence is a normal, everyday component of this society. It's the inevitable element of governance here and of social organization, and it is more common than the mythologies of social peace and uh, well-being, those myths that hold the everyday society together. Our work has turned towards focusing on developing networks between communities that have felt isolated and trying to build a stronger movement in order to fight and to reveal this invisibilized displacement and violence and to build organizational capacity to fight it. Yeah. The thing about the downtown east side is just more acute, more visible down there. That's where I got my start in that. The struggle for housing was I actually lived in a single room occupancy about six years ago. And I was asked to speak at a press conference by Ivan here. And I did. And I've been involved ever since. For a couple of years, we conducted strategy meetings and fairly rigorous discussions analyzing the work that we had been doing and the work that we'd been doing in the other groups that we were all part of, which were different anti-poverty and housing groups, mostly in the downtown east side. We decided at the end of these two years to try an experiment of organizing in communities outside of the downtown east side, trying to locate potential struggles that rise up organically out of other community spaces and then build relationships and support the emergence of political demands and political projects and campaigns in those community spaces. The first one that we tried was in the metro town area in Burnaby, where the city was one by one through spot rezonings, demolishing low-rise, low-end-of-market rental apartment buildings and replacing them with condos, so that in the two years that we've been organizing here around that, there have been 680 units of low-end-of-market rentals demolished, and the city has since announced plans for a new metro town plan, which will just level the entire community, demolishing 3,000 units of relatively affordable rental apartments and replacing them all with condos. And in this space, it's been very successful in terms of building a local campaign. There's a couple of dozen people who live in the community who are in these buildings who have taken on leadership roles within this space. And they're not people who have backgrounds in activism. They're people who it's just new to. And over a couple of years of working with them, they've learned how to be in a meeting and how to think about actions and how to go petitioning and leafleting and how to speak to their neighbors. And all of these mechanics of what community organizing is, is something that you develop these skills alongside a better political literacy about how this stuff works.
And we're also working in communities in Maple Ridge with homeless people and low-income people who are faced with incredible violence from anti-poor bigots in Maple Ridge who they call vigilantes, like Maple Ridge vigilantes, that target homeless and low-income people with physical violence and with constant harassment. And the police, in support of these vigilantes, have recently announced that they're planning to implement a red zone for the entirety of the downtown of Maple Ridge for anyone who is known to police as a repeat offender, which we think is a violation of people's charter rights, and we're beginning to organize a campaign against that. Similarly, we're organizing in Abbotsford with almost people who are victims of what they call the Abbotsford shuffle of having their tent city camp constantly move from one site to another by court injunction, but never being fully smashed and just living under constant harassment from police who've done things like dumped loads of chicken manure on their tent cities into their tents and bear sprayed their sleeping bags. So when they get back into their tent, they get hit by bear spray in the middle of the night. And the same in Surrey, where people on 135A Strip are forced every morning to take down all of their survival structures, their tents, and forced to just wander with their soaking wet bag of blankets until it's evening again and they can set it down somewhere for the nighttime and get their community smashed apart again by bylaw officers in the morning every day. So we found these struggles to be really vital spaces that can produce hopeful spots of resistance, as well as the really kind of devastating truths of the way that poverty is being policed in British Columbia. And that experiment with doing community organizing drives to build the organization has also really helped us develop a stronger politics and a sense of who we are and what our role is. We really feel the way that supporting these communities in struggle increases the strength of that struggle. And folks in different tent cities or in different communities around the lower mainland and now Vancouver Island, people want to travel between different communities and support each other. Like we had a march to support the 58 tent city on Hastings two weeks ago and tried to move it to a new site on Thornton Park. Police immediately attacked it and arrested seven of us. But in the, in the march from that one tent city site to another, it was so great to have four people come out from the tent city in Maple Ridge to come and march with people on the downtown east side. It improves their sense of being in a bigger community than just that one immediately around them. They have a sense of being able to call in reinforcements when you need it, when you're not strong enough to just take on the bigots who are surrounding you just by yourself. And it breaks this pernicious localism that says that the only people who can speak about an issue are people who live in the immediate block that the issue is occurring on, that we have a class solidarity and a solidarity between Indigenous people that transcends any particular locality. So those are the terms that we're reorganizing the struggle with this group now. One thing we wanted to do, too, is challenge the dichotomy of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And when I say that, I mean the undeserving poor, people who may or may not be dealing with addiction issues, mental health issues, who are outright visibly homeless, visibly poor, versus, you know, grannies and single moms and... and who are obviously not drug users. Yeah, and yeah, people who aren't obviously drug users, people who are, for lack of a better term, are just normal people. We really wanted to try, challenge this notion of some people deserve to be poor and some people are just unlucky. And also, too, especially when you're low income, especially in the downtown east side, you tend to only be familiar with the downtown east side. And you do forget that there are people struggling all over the lower mainland. For all the similarities in people's experiences and struggles between 
a big city context and smaller centers, there are also important differences too. Differences in terms of how things are experienced, differences in terms of priorities, differences in terms of local political culture. What are you doing in your work with the Alliance Against Displacement to bridge some of those gaps between the organizing coming out of the downtown east side and what's happening in some of these other communities? One of the difficulties we had when we first started the Alliance Against Displacement, we realized that there has to be some kind of groundwork to build some familiarity with the different groups that we're trying to work with. And there needs to be some level of engagement before we have these political discussions, because there is that tendency for people to say, you know, you live in the downtown east side, who are you to be talking about what's going on in Burnaby or what's going on in Maple Ridge, what's going on in Surrey. So we really did have to plan or build the politics with the group in the situation that they are in, not necessarily the situation we want them to be in. We found if we came out with like a ready-made package presenting our politics, people wouldn't be so receptive. But if we held some town halls and some meetings and explained the place we were coming from and how we came to our political analysis of the situation, people would be more open to hearing from us, working with us. The big thing that we found in each of these different places that we showed up in order to try to support the struggles that were there was that the first step is not to presume that we're bringing struggle to the space, that we're not developing the terms of the movement. What we're doing is adding a component to it that was missing. That component that's missing is the political analysis that we have, and also the limited but significant organizing apparatus that we can offer, which is mostly a set of skills and people who are willing to contribute time and energy who have those skills in order to try to give those struggles that are already existing a stronger political form. So recognizing that, it means that our first step always has been to invest a lot of time in listening to people and where they're at. Each place has its own challenges. And for anybody who's worked in low-income communities, you know that meetings aren't always meetings. Sometimes a meeting is you sit in a tent city on the ground with whoever's around and try to have a conversation. And in two hours, you talk to two dozen people and kind of together and kind of individually. But you cobble together relationships and politics out of these loose threads. It's the commitment to it, the refusal to just parachute in and pretend you know better, but to build relationships. That's what's been the difference between being perceived as an outsider and being perceived as a part of the community that's contributing something within a division of labor. I remember when we first started, I think it was in Burnaby, one of the local politicians, when, when speaking to our group, had said not to bring Vancouver's problems out to Burnaby. And it's not that there wasn't homeless people in Burnaby beforehand, despite what the mayor said. That wasn't the problem. The problem was coming in and politicizing the issue. Vancouver's problem was protesting. Yeah, Vancouver's problem was protesting and building a political analysis of why do people live in poverty. The other thing that we did this year, which felt really like a big step forward, was we organized a few convergences that brought people together from different communities to support one side of struggle when they really needed it. So like in Maple Ridge, where people are really scared of the vigilante violence, we did a march down the highway in Maple Ridge, and the march was heavily supported by people from the downtown east side. And when the tent city was coming under attack in Victoria and they were getting an injunction, we rented buses 
and brought 50 homeless people from communities in the mainland over to Victoria to join with the tent city there and say, like, we're all one. And we organized a summit in May in Vancouver and brought together 60 people from these different communities where we had been involved in struggles and brought them all together for people to share their ideas and their experiences all in one room. And it created a really amazing empathetic space that people immediately started strategizing about how to organize tent cities more effectively about how to combine the work of stopping evictions of employed working class people through demo evictions and reno evictions, how to combine their efforts with the efforts against the displacement of unemployed working class people who are homeless. And people entered the space, like some of the women who came from Burnaby said in advance that they were scared to come to the meeting because it was in the downtown east side and that they didn't have a familiarity with homeless people and were really had absorbed a bourgeois ideology about homelessness from the mainstream media. And they sat in a room with with the drug users and really low-income people for two days and developed a strong sense of unity through these sharings of not only stories, but of political struggle. I think that creating these unusual spaces is a major way to break through the ways that we can particularize different struggles as unique to certain communities and not having points of commonality and unity outside. One of the things that seems quite distinctive about the Alliance Against Displacement compared to a lot of other political projects in the Canadian context is the emphasis that you put on political development and political education. Why do you think that's important and how do you go about doing it? Sometimes people just get fed these canned answers from big media about, you know, how people become poor because it's something pathological. It's something within them that's wrong, not the system as a whole. And we really needed to challenge that idea. And the only way to do it is to do it. And people are either going to just laugh at us and tell us we're wrong, which we're quite used to. Or they might be a little bit challenged or even offended, but they might come back. And if they do come back, when they do come back, that's that little opening that we seize to try to bring them around to a higher level of political thinking. For me, I think nearly every component of organizing at this time, in the context where we are, where the radical left or left that rejects the reasonable or pragmatic or obviously available options, if we reject those entirely because all of them are the destruction of the planet and the death of our communities, That left is able to even nebulously imagine a different future, a different world, a different way of being, a different set of knowledge. That left is very weak. I think that in this context, all of the work that we do is education, and it's a dialectical education, one that we learn from while we try to engage with others. So we speak our truths and the ears that it falls upon and the way people respond to that truth correct that truth for us if we're being careful with it. And we can, through that process, bring those people into the circle of who is acting. There's three levels of education that we work on in order to deepen and expand our analysis and our identity as a group. The broadest step is through demonstrations and actions and also public forums. Those kinds of forums are a public education that is intervening in the dominant discourses. Sometimes they're oriented towards the communities that we're engaged in most closely with, and sometimes they're more generalized and just kind of out into the public. And part of that, too, is that we also work on publishing the Volcano newspaper, 
which we publish a print edition of four times a year. And it's a 24-page tabloid newspaper that we print 8,000 copies of and distribute in all of the communities where we're organizing and beyond as well in the spaces where we hope to be organizing in the future. And in that space, we can put the ideas of people in different communities beside each other in order to encourage them to see them as aligned. So we do a lot of interviews of people who are on the ground leaders in these different struggles and reflect those struggles as close as we can in the words and through the best of the ideas that people have who are leading those community struggles. And by putting them together on a page or in pages next to each other, it creates a sense of association and challenges the limits of what people might be expecting. I've seen like sitting in a homeless camp in Maple Ridge, we're having a meeting, I bring the newspaper and then sitting there, we're talking about how to stop the cops from breaking up the tent city. And a guy brings the newspaper over and says, why are you arguing against pipelines? What does this have to do with us? Mm-hmm. And we have an hour-long discussion about the relationship between resource extraction and the displacement of low-income and indigenous communities in urban spaces. So that kind of education has a really deep value in terms of our understandings and our proximities to each other. The other two levels of education that we do is that we organize an education discussion series called CAUSE or the Conditions of Struggle Education Class Series. Every two weeks, we have a class, and it's publicly announced, but not really heavily advertised. We encourage people to come to this discussion who also are involved in the campaigns in different communities. We usually have between 15 or 20 people come to those discussions, and we have a package of readings, and we usually talk about two articles in one session. Some people read them, some people don't read them, but we are able to have a discussion about those things. And by talking about these issues outside of the like pressing campaigns that we have and through some other lenses that aren't located just in the Vancouver area, or maybe they're in other parts of the world, it can spark our radical imaginations and give us passageways around or underneath the blocks that we put up in our minds. And the final level of education we do is in Alliance Against Displacement itself just for our members. And we're working on this. We haven't fully developed it yet, but we're trying to figure out how to deepen our common political basis of unity beyond issues. We believe that our political understandings of issues, our basis of unity, our theorizing of what class is in a post-industrial neoliberal society, what colonialism is in the context of that class structure, and the centrality of real estate as a special commodity in this colonial and capitalist setting, these analyses will tell us what it is we need to focus on. They will tell us how we can fight more effectively. And we can't just put it off to just single issue things. We need to be effective in intervening in these community struggles and to build low-income community power, Indigenous people's power, rather than just protesting. We need to know what it is we're fighting for. And that's the thing, like what it is the world we're fighting for. We're not there yet, but that's the orientation we have and what we hope to develop through this political work that includes education and discussion. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that the leaders of the Alliance really try to do is not create more followers, but to create more leaders wherever we go. I think that should be our barometer of success, not how many Twitter followers we have, not how many Facebook mm-hmm. likes we can get, but how many people do we empower in each community we go to. What's coming up for the Alliance Against Displacement in 2017? I think that things have changed in the last six months in a qualitative way, in a foundational way. There's been a shift in terms of what's possible 
for organizing in all these different community spaces. Some of that is the development of the campaigns themselves and the levels of trust and familiarity in different communities. But some of it also is the political situation more broadly. What's coming is reflective of a shift that is characterized by, on one hand, a rising fascist right, which is exemplified in the United States by the presidency of Donald Trump. And here, in different ways, they're a bit more nebulous. In our day-to-day stuff, it includes the vigilante hate groups that are organized to physically attack homeless people. And on the other hand, the other end of it is exemplified by the no DAPL, Dakota Access Pipeline resistance in Dakota, and the willingness of thousands of people to refuse the laws as things that are binding them to certain kinds of behavior. There's a rupture with civil society orderliness that has been an an undercurrent of social movements for the last few years. So here, that's going to look like, for us, organizing in a number of spaces, widespread defense of low-income communities outside of the existing legal frameworks. In Burnaby, we hope to organize a We Won't Go campaign. There's a couple of buildings that we're hopeful it'll be able to found this campaign in. Those buildings have been rezoned for condo towers, and there's residents there who are warm to the idea of refusing to leave when the eviction comes due. And we think if we can organize a couple of buildings of people who refuse to go, really force a rupture in this civil society organization of the dominant state. To have police drag out elderly people who live in these buildings for 40 years, to drag them out in all of their belongings and throw them in the street, if there's 10 of them that refuse to leave, I think we're calling their bluff around the solidity of these eviction laws. I think widely people will regard these eviction laws as immoral and wrong in supporting the profits of a few corporations and really seriously hurting a community. So in anti-eviction struggles, I think we're seeing a point where mass civil disobedience and refusal of these eviction laws is something that's on the table. And we couldn't have said that a year ago. For homeless people, Our attempt to stop the breakup of the new tent city at Thornton Park last week was the beginning of a refusal to allow the police to displace homeless people any longer. And that's not like a macho thing that this is like where tough men fight the cops. Our communities are strong because of the diversity in them, the levels of ability with which we can stand together and support each other to stand up against the cops. As Herb has said before, the best example that we've seen of people blocking police access to take down a low-income community space was when it was entirely women elders in wheelchairs and scooters who formed the like tank line against the police trying to get into a building they were squatting. Our resistance doesn't look the same as their assault does. Mm-hmm. Our resistance is able to hold up and support the most vulnerable people as the ones who are strongest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the real strength that we have. You have been listening to my interview with Herb Varley and Ivan Drury of British Columbia's Alliance Against Displacement. To learn more about their work, go to stopdisplacement.ca. That's stopdisplacement.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.